everyone! This week we're sitting down with Dr. Lucia Remedu to talk about women in science and the new Center for Learning and Teaching here at the Faculty of Science and Engineering. Hello! Hi, thanks for the invitation. Of course. Um, to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, uh, first let me say that I've been in Groningen for uh, six and a half years and I've been the director of this newly launched center since January. Um, a little bit about my career. So before coming to Groningen, um, I spent time in Cyprus uh, for about 10 years. That's where I grew up and I was raised. A very different environment and weather uh, <laughs> than Groningen. Um, but I study, uh, my background first degree is in education. Uh, with a focus on physics and from there I moved to the US where I did my PhD in physics education. You're probably wondering what that is or if uh, a lot of people ask if this is a discipline or something that exists. Yeah, it is uh, a degree uh, and it is precisely at the intersection of physics and education. So I'm interested in how physics is taught or how uh, people learn science, and I use people to refer broadly to students of all age groups. I'm personally more interested in, in children, young children, than adults, because um, I think they're much more fun um, <laughs> than adults. Uh, but I'm also interested in how physics is represented in the media uh, and how we can support the public engage with concepts related to physics, which means I do a lot of work with museums or science centers um, to kind of communicate not only uh, how what physics is or what physicists uh, do, but to also try to support an increase of interest of younger children in uh, in physics in particular, but more broadly uh, in the sciences. And um, in Groningen, um, um, what's interesting, I guess, for this audience is that I teach in the master's program called Science Education and Communication. It's an interdisciplinary master's program. So my students come from different uh, disciplines, mostly biology, <laughs> physics, environmental sciences, mathematics. Uh, and some of them want to become high school teachers, but some others want to work in the what's called informal sector, meaning the museums or science centers, radio, um, doing podcasts, for example, or designing exhibits um, and so on. And uh, I'm also leading a research team. We're about 15 or 16 people uh, now in the research team, and we all have a um, kind of a more interdisciplinary background at the intersection of sciences and education or communication. Uh, I have PhD students who have a background in mathematics, and they do uh, their projects on mathematics teaching at the university. Um, I have others who come with a background in biology or environmental sciences, uh, and I have others with a background in neuroscience, for example, who are interested in designing exhibits uh, that engage uh, young children or families uh, with science. So yeah, it's a bit of a, it's definitely a lot of interdisciplinary work that cuts across disciplines, but also research interest. And this is what makes it uh, super ex exciting because we work with a lot of different people. 
uh, different social groups, uh, but also people of different ages. Uh, and we do work a lot with university students, of course, and their lecturers, their teachers, and trying to make their uh, experience at the university, I guess, more enjoyable at times or more meaningful. Um, yeah, that's it in a, in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> It sounds very fulfilling, honestly. Yeah. It's, it's very wholesome how you describe it. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, fulfilling is a, it's the right word. <laughs> That's why I still do this work after yeah. after all this year. And why it's fulfilling is because we do see the impact of this work on, almost on a daily basis. And I mean, just to give an example, if we work with a lecturer in mathematics, for example, and we help them to convert a lecture a very teacher-centered lecture into a um, student-centered class, a very engaging student-centered class that incorporates uh, different strategies or activities ranging from theater to debates or uh, exploring everyday life issues. Uh, that's, this is how we define impact. Um, so we see how teaching can be transformed um, and consequently hoping that learning also transforms in this way. How did you uh, discover you were more interested in education instead of just physics? Right? Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a very good question. Um, so I was fortunate enough to come across uh, researchers uh, that do exactly the, the same work. I never thought of myself as someone who uh, works in a, in a laboratory. I'm uh, very uh, interested in research that takes place in more social spaces, I guess. Uh, I do like people most of the time, so I, I enjoy <laughs> working more with, uh, with people. Um, but it's also because of my interest in really, or the potential I see in teaching essentially to, to change the world or to kind of uh, reimagine uh, societies. And I think um, teachers have a very powerful role to play into reimagining uh, the future. So yeah, that's where my interest comes from but yeah this is mostly influences uh, from researchers who were also trained as physicists and they left the laboratory to engage with uh, work in, in education or in communication public engagement with science okay so um when kind of a little bit of backstory how we came to interview you actually is we stumbled across an article that you co-authored um about representation of uh, women in stem and movies um, and that's kind of the original idea we had for this uh, episode so could you tell us a little bit about that research project yeah uh, first of all let me say that that was not my research it was a research project of one of our master's student uh, that she did it was her final assignment uh for her for her program and she's now working at uh, NIMO at the Science Center in Amsterdam that's why she couldn't be here today but uh, that's also when Denise Cool is her name and uh, she's interested in issues around representation of science diversity and inclusion and equity and that's something uh, also that's uh, one uh, part of my work, one of my the research lines that I've been following the past uh, 10 years or so. Um, but Denise was especially interested in how women were represented in the, in the media. 
And this is precisely what uh, she tried to do with, uh, with this work. So she tried to analyze how women scientists are portrayed in uh, popular film uh, because she was interested in exploring um, an issue that has been really largely explored in the literature, how media shape uh, career aspirations of, of young girls. Or I can rephrase this and say how media perpetuates gender science stereotypes or um, gender stereotypes in general. So from not only from through films, but also through advertisements, for example. Uh, you see quite often uh, that, uh, that media play a contributing role in shaping how society or what society expects from, uh, from different big people. Um, and we also know from research that um, films especially have a very prominent role in, in shaping young girls' uh, career aspirations. Uh, this is work that has been done uh, in the 80s, uh, in the 90s. One good example of this is the, it's what's called, what, what is called the Scully effect. Uh, I'm probably too young to know this uh, um, this series X Files. Uh, mm -hmm. It was in it was in the U.S. and the main uh, the protagonist uh, was Dr. Dana Catherine Scully. Um, so she was a fictional character. She's one of the two protagonists in this uh, in this series uh, that essentially deals with um, extraterrestrial uh, life. Uh, but what the research showed is that this is the period that. Uh, the, we witness a really high increase in STEM studies and careers for women. Um, and this is called in the literature the Scully effect. And the reason that there was a, such a big uh, impact of this, of this character, first of all, it was one of the few uh, series uh, that uh, had a woman as a protagonist, but also if you compare the two roles, the woman and the man, uh, Scully comes across as a, um, as a really super cool character, a very smart, uh, competent character. But also she kind of reconstructs all the societal stereotypes about women scientists. Uh, she's very feminine. Um, she has a very cool social life. Uh, she has a circle of friends. She's well liked. Uh, she's not portrayed as, uh, you know, this asocial, uh, disastrous person with very limited social skills that uh, scientists are usually portrayed uh, in the media. Um, so there were a couple of uh, longitudinal studies on this, longitudinal meaning uh, measuring the impact across uh, the years, a long period of years. And there is strong evidence to suggest that uh, during that period, the 90s and early 2000s, in the, in the U.S. at least, there was a, a very high increase of girls choosing STEM studies uh, and careers because of, uh, because of SCALI. Uh, so it, yeah, it's building on this idea that this work uh, came to be. And what Denise did in, uh, in her work was to analyze how women scientists are portrayed in eight films, uh, more popular uh, contemporary films. Um, 
which was a it's a really fun research project because we, you know we had supervision meetings and what we did through supervision meetings was was to watch movies. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, and what we did was to first analyze the story of the movie because that, that was uh, of the film that that was important for us to see what's the story about what uh, what what how are the women portrayed in this story what is what is their role. Um, but then also we did a personality analysis of this uh, of this character again to kind of compare with um, societal stereotypes about uh, you know wanted women to to behave in certain ways or to have certain personality characteristics, um, and then we compare these our analysis with uh, with the existing literature on gender science stereotypes. Um, and the main finding from from these research is that first, there there has been progress in how women have been portrayed in the in the media. Uh, in the past, women were portrayed in ways um, such as uh, support having supportive roles of male scientists, like being the helper, um, or being someone who will entertain the male. Uh, the male scientists, uh, quite often women are over-sexualized. Um, a woman in the laboratory is someone that it's very likely that the male scientists will, will have a sexual relationship uh, with uh, and so on. Or someone who is uh, afraid to speak up, um, you know, very... a, a supportive role uh, than a more uh, leadership role. So this is a, this is what we did uh, with this study, and I, I can talk a bit about about the findings. Is that we did find that uh, in a couple of these movies, uh, women were over sexualized, or at times were portrayed as experiencing mental health issues, uh, or uh, being in a laboratory um, to entertain the the male scientist, uh, but the most prevalent uh, stereotypes uh, is actually what we use as a title, the lonely heroine. They were portrayed as very competent and capable um, women, but they were lonely um, because they chose to work alone. Um, and they were also lonely in terms of uh, their social lives. Um, which doesn't really represent uh, the, the reality or and, and it's definitely not the, the ideas that we want young people to, to have their mind about uh, scientists in general, but especially uh, women in science. Um, yeah. Could you say that the loneliness aspect of the science uh, scientist is also just general to scientists because I also picture a lot of the portrayal of men scientists that are like kind of uh, not really part of society. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I think there is a good reason why stereotypes do exist over the years because indeed there is some truth uh, to that. Um, but I want to believe that uh, we're getting over these these stereotypes uh, for many different reasons. Uh, the first one is that uh, this research has become much more interdisciplinary. So it's very rare right now that you will find physicists alone working on a, on a problem. And we see a lot more collaboration across uh, physical sciences and, and social sciences. So that's, a, that's one 
reason why it's very rare to find a scientist working alone. And the second one is that science is is never actually done alone. It, it is a social uh, project. It's very likely uh, that a person might work on their own on an experiment, but uh, it's actually quite common that that experiment is part of a larger studies that include uh, a lot of people. Uh, so I think by nature, the scientific by nature scientific practice is social. Uh, you can think about the um, conceptualization of ideas. I mean, people are not sitting in their living rooms alone and they come up with ideas about what what to research. People come up with ideas through intellectual conversations with others or uh, through participating in conferences. Um, uh, through research meetings, um, and then from the process of conceptualizing an idea to the carrying out of uh, of research to the communication of research, there are constantly a lot of people engaged. Uh, peer reviewers who will go into to peer review the paper that you will write, uh, sharing your work in in writing, sharing your work uh, at conferences. Uh, it's a, it's a very very social. Uh, process, uh, but indeed, I, th- I do think that a, that a lot of people, um, university students included, do hold these stereotypical ideas that uh, you know scientists are alone, or specific ideas about how how science is done that are not true. And I blame us, I blame the teachers for not really being more explicit about the nature of scientific practice or the work that we do, or put simply how how a day in our life might, might look like. Um, you see a lot of lecturers getting in the classroom, uh, going through their slides, meeting their learning goals, and sharing nothing about their lives uh, outside of that class. And I think... Uh, that's a missed opportunity about showcasing the humane nature and social nature of scientific uh, practice. You want to make it more personal, the education. Indeed. Uh, you know, one of my students is working with uh, in the mathematics. Uh, she's doing work in the mathematics uh, program, and the title of one of her papers is something like "Seeing the Person Behind the, the Scientist," and this is precisely what she what she aims to do, because by putting up the person uh, in front of science, you're also showcasing who can do science. Uh, so you communicate ideas about. Um, who has access to science um, or who is allowed in science in issues related to representation that are directly related to issues related to diversity, for example, and, and inclusivity. Imagine, for example, being in in class where you see, like, for three years as an undergraduate physics student, for example, you you only see men. And you never come across uh, someone uh, on a wheelchair or you never see black women in the classroom, like the the diversity uh, of people who might engage with with physics sometimes remains um, invisible or underrepresented, and I think... Yeah, that, that's a problem because it communicates an idea about who can do science and, and typically uh, the white upper class men yeah, I with think, the Western background too. Yeah, I think that does subconsciously have an effect on you. Not consciously, but 
over the years if you only see one type of person doing something. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah I like that you introduce the term sub- subconscious because indeed this is how stereotypes uh, get to get to develop uh, subconsciously and this is exactly how the how the media works or um, what is represented in the media um, there is always a subtle message that is represented in every image so how do you, why do you think the representation of scientists has gone so not accurate like you described it's actually very social do you think media or people in movies just don't know the process of making science or Where do you mm-hmm. think it comes from? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, historically, uh, the, f- again, there is some truth in that. Uh, if you see the statistics, the numbers, uh, for example, uh, we currently have in Europe, we currently have only 25% of the scientific researchers are women. Uh, and that percent and 75 are men, and that percentage drops uh, in the Netherlands, especially. Um Historically, it comes from the fact, the very fact, that there were fewer women in science than men. Um, and we also know the reasons why it uh, has to do with uh, not um, issues related with interest or competence, but with issues related to barriers, systemic barriers, misrepresentation, uh, and so on. Uh, but the second one is, is exactly what you said. I think... Uh, Yeah, a lot of um, uh, people who work in this field, the, the media, might not be uh, aware of, of the danger in uh, misery that exists in misrepresentation or the lack of representation of uh, not only women, but also specific uh, social groups, LGBTQI+, uh, community, black women, uh, for example, pe- people with mental health issues, uh, specific Social groups are consistent, have consistently been excluded uh, from uh, representations in, in the media. And that, uh, I think, yeah, uh, it comes with a big risk. I think it's it's safe to assume that kind of your work goes to dismantle those stereotypes and to kind of work towards integrating as many different communities in the science field as possible. Yeah, indeed, uh, that, that's one of my, if you ask, what was my main uh, overarching goal of my research, that indeed is that, to to widen and diversify participation in science, which means not only to increase the numbers of people who do science or engage with science, but to also increase the, the diversity of people who do science. And um, I can can share a couple of examples of the work done in our, in our master's program uh, that target these goals. So as part of my course, it's called uh, Science in the Public, the students have to design a, an exhibit, a science exhibit, uh, that communicates a certain concept uh, of science. Then when you start thinking about issues related to, uh, to representation. So if you choose that that exhibit showcases the, the work of three men from the West, then you communicate a certain, uh, certain ideas about uh, science that are exclusive. Uh, if you choose to design an exhibit that, um, that the text includes uh, a specific language, then you exclude other people who do, uh, who do not speak that, that, uh, that language. If you choose that your exhibit is at a certain height, 
say the the poster uh, is at a height of two meters, then automatically you exclude people who might be able to visit on only in a wheelchair. Um, so these are these are issues that we try to uh, uh, to tackle through through our work. And another assignment of this course is that students get to to shoot, to direct and shoot a video, a small video for the general public that communicates certain scientific concepts. Uh, COVID, for example, it's something that we um, that we use quite a lot in the past uh, few years. But then again, the choice of scientists, uh, the choices that you make about whose work to showcase in, in this video, again, it, uh, it represents specific ideas about uh, who can do who can do science. So if in every video that we see or in uh, we see a Western white male, uh, then again, that's a, that's exclusive and, uh, and limiting and it only portrays a, a partial image of uh, what science is and who can do science. I'm curious, how did you find this quote unquote niche in, in, in research? Or what sparked your interest, I guess? Yeah. Um, I guess the main interest is personal because uh, as a person, I do carry with me different identities that are... Uh, yeah, you can put me in the box of, of diversity. Uh, for example, uh, I'm in the Netherlands, but I'm not Dutch. I'm not fluent in uh, in the language. I'm also a woman in, uh, in science. So... Uh, I lived in different uh, places, so you see like a mixture of cultural identities that also come to, to come to play. So I guess one of the reasons is maybe uh, a reason that has to do with existence, that, that I, first of all, I, I had to justify my existence in different places, like every time I find myself in a, in a meeting that is full of uh, men and I'm the only woman. Uh, that that's something that I'm more conscious about. Um, if I enter a class and I see or a class of 25 students and I only see one woman, uh, that's again something that I'm that I'm very conscious about. Um, I, but I also grew up in a, in a context where I didn't have a lot of opportunities to engage uh, with science, and this is a construct that's defining the literature as science capital. How many opportunities we have as children to engage with science? How many science books are at home? Uh, how many times do we visit museums? Are there scientists in their in the media in our media environment? Um, though I did have a strong interest in science, I didn't have these um, these opportunities, uh, and that's something that. Um, yeah, when I came across reading this kind of research related to inclusivity in science, I related to it personally. Uh, so that's one, and that's a really beautiful if you manage to kind of put yourself in your research or to meet personal goals while you do uh, you develop professionally. I think that's a, that's really beautiful. Um, but the second one, perhaps more concretely, I kind of came across this kind of work when I worked uh, in London after I finished my PhD. 
I work at the King's College at the University of London and as part of a large project where we work with museums, the Science Museum and the Natural History Museum, where we were tasked with the responsibility of evaluating the impact of a, of a specific exhibits. So um, by that, I mean we uh, were tasked with the responsibility to kind of measure what people learn when they visit museums. Um, but also kind of uh, evaluate who gets in the museum, who is in the museum. And I, that was work that was done in 2005. And, you know, we all think of London as this, like, super diverse city. Uh, but surprisingly, when you go to a science, the Science Museum, you only see, you mostly see British people. Uh, there are no ethnic minorities, there are no religious minorities, and, and there are very good reasons for this. Uh, first, there are systemic barriers. Um, it's a very expensive ticket to pay to get in. Um, but the m- other reason, perhaps more conceptual one, is that these social groups or communities do not feel represented either through the objects that quite often might also uh, represent a colonial history uh, past of the country, um, or that they don't see any images where they could see themselves. And there is this uh, kind of slogan in the, in the sciences or in this research field that says you cannot be what you cannot see. So if you are a six-year-old girl or a 15-year-old girl and you never come across in the media with any images of people that uh, look like you, then subconsciously you create the, this idea that, yeah, maybe science is not for me. If I don't see anyone that looks like me in this in this field. Um, and through that work, we found that uh, indeed these spaces, in fact, uh, are exclusive or are safe for certain groups of people, the ones actually who already had access to resources, to science. Um, but also from a more ideological point of view, for me, it's problematic to to have public museums, for example, or to have public institutions like, like the universities that only serve specific populations and specific communities and, and excludes others. Uh, so it was that around that time when I saw, first of all, who is in the museum um, in this super diverse city um, or who is represented in the, in the exhibits, in the questions, in the scenarios, in the experiments or in the, even in the posters that are used in these, in these spaces. Um, and since then, I kind of, um, all of my, my research work kind of falls within this, this overarching goal of uh, making science accessible to everyone, uh, not only as receivers of scientific uh, knowledge, but also as producers of scientific uh, knowledge. I wanted to ask you, when do you think you will have, when do you know you achieved the goal? But I feel like maybe you already gave the answer because you said that if you're in a room with men, you're very conscious of the fact that you're the woman. And I feel like if that consciousness is not there anymore, then maybe we've achieved the goal. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I I think we're a long way. Uh, We're very far away uh, from that. Uh, From a research perspective, when I feel that I have achieved my goal is when we we do research evaluation of all our projects uh, that we do. For example, we had a project in Bayum in um, 
um, which is very close to Groningen with a with a group of uh, with a group of uh, young children with an ethnic background. Uh, it was a Saturday program where we tried to engage the families with science, so offer them opportunities that they, they usually don't have in our everyday life. So for me, in Pag- it was every Saturday that I went in and I saw uh, these families spending time with science or a young uh, person coming to me and say, um, I never thought I would become a scientist, but now maybe I, maybe I do. Maybe I can become a scientist. Uh, and, you know, we usually start these projects with questions like, do you see yourself as scientist or do you like science? And usually the response is, no, science is too difficult and I'm not smart enough. Uh, so for me, impact is if one of these, uh, even if one child comes at the end of this program or a research project and says, um, yeah, maybe I will consider a, a career in science. Uh, maybe I change my view. I don't want to be a policeman or a fireman anymore. So that's a that's one kind of impact, uh, but yeah, the other one it, it has to do indeed with with representation or like making also other people be more conscious or, or lecturers, uh, for example, where they enter a classroom and there are no women or uh, there is only a small number of women and those are all uh, they don't represent diverse identities. It's twofold. It's it's the research impact that we're interested, in, but it's also the impact in the in their everyday life. Uh, for me, it's important that, for example, a member of my research team recently came and said, um, "I feel that this is the only space that I can actually bring uh, my whole self, or I can actually behave how I, re- I really am." Uh, that th- for me, that what actually communicates is that we created an environment which is welcoming and inclusive of everyone, and science is not that space. So, is the the center for teaching and learning kind of a tool to achieve that in a, at a more larger scale? Yeah, indeed. Um, the Center for Learning and Teaching, uh, so we put learning first and teaching second because uh, because we assume that people need to learn how to teach first before they teach. <laughs> it yeah. may sound too obvious, but it's not always the case. Um, and that's one of the goals of the center, to support lecturers develop the skills and knowledge needed to innovate their teaching practices. So we do offer professional development for lecturers. Um, and we also use learning and teaching because we don't assume that if you teach something, students learn something. Teaching doesn't equal learning. Uh, and we also, another assumption that we operate from is that our students don't only learn from the classroom. Uh, in fact, we acknowledge that our students probably learn much more outside of the classroom or their lectures uh, than within their, their lectures. Um, but the center, yeah, one of the goals of the of the center is to promote goals related to inclusivity. Uh, but as a center, the, the goal is more overarching and more general. The main goal is to innovate how teaching is done in our faculty, to be more uh, teacher-centered, to be more aligned with contemporary learning, uh, learning theories, to utilize uh, digital learning tools uh, and in general to, 
to create learning environments that are more conducive uh, to learning um, across the faculty. Uh, so indeed, our, our ambition is to scale up, to scale up and achieve feedback uh, impact by reaching a lot of uh, a high number of teachers and then consequently reaching a high number uh, of students. Uh, the center consists of three teams. It's my my team that does research. Um, as I said, we're an interdisciplinary team who we all have a focus in the sciences and an interest in education and communication. There is another team called PI, Professionalization and Innovation in Education, uh, that includes five uh, trainers and curriculum developers who work more closely with lecturers and program boards uh, for the purpose of redesigning program or studies or redesigning specific courses and evaluation methods. And there's also another team that is called uh, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. Again, it's a group of trainers and developers. And these aim to support, again, program boards uh, achieve goals related to internationalization and, and inclusivity. So it's a kind of a hybrid center that brings together researchers, practitioners and teachers as well. Uh, what's interesting perhaps to the audience is that the Honors College is also part of the, of the center. And this is how we're hoping to to get closer or directly uh, uh, work directly with with students um, because essentially we view the honors college as kind of a living lab or, or experimentation space mm -hmm. for for teaching innovation uh, so what we're trying to do now is to get a large research projects where we can design and implement um, innovative materials and try these out with the honor students. Um, but we're also trying to work with the honor students, especially in research. So we and we already have a couple of students already working on on research projects, and that uh, the purpose is twofold: not only to to offer them a more central role in um, uh, or power in like designing their own education, um, but to also kind of and culture and culturate them in the process of scientific uh, practice to give them opportunities to work in a research group to reconstruct their stereotypical ideas about how scientists look like or how science is is done um, and so on so they're not only your guinea pigs <laughs> exactly it is yeah. um sorry it is uh i think very important what you're doing because a lot of professors just teach because they have to because yep. they want to do research and so they have to teach so it's more of a mandatory thing and not something they're very not always passionate about yeah. so yeah I'm, gl I'm glad that you bring this up because uh, that's also like the hidden curriculum of the of the center to create a cultural change around the value of education and indeed, you're right. For a long time, uh, research has been prioritized over uh, over education for different reasons. Some people just don't like teaching, uh, or some people think that the 
can only get promoted if they do more and more research. Uh, but this has been changing in the past uh, couple of years. And I think the center is concrete evidence that um, our faculty does value education or uh, this is an effort to showcase how we try to bring education to, to the forefront and highlight the importance of education's, uh, education. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. good, because if you think of the longevity of research, then you want people who are passionate about teaching, right? So if you force people into a position where they actually don't want to do it, it's not. I don't think it's good for the overall um, research society. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. I mean, I, I mean the, the core business of, of a university is to do both research and education. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you're right, quite often education uh, is neglected. Uh, but this is precisely what, uh, what we're trying to do. Um, but as you said, so you use the word force people. Um, Maybe it's a bit extreme. <laughs> um, but I mean, you are right. There, there is truth to that. And, and I guess one of our aspirations is to actually make people, lecturers, realize the value of education uh, first or the opportunities that education offers for them to self-develop, uh, to actually shape the future of the society. Because what, what you're doing with teaching is much more than supporting students develop certain knowledge and skills. You're shaping the next generation of scientists. Um, and consequently, you have a role to play in shaping how society will look like uh, in 10 years from now. So that's a huge privilege uh, yeah. to throw away so easily but also a huge responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that's why professionalization is important across uh, somebody's career. And especially, you can think of people who've been working here for 30 years. Uh, um, we, we all need to kind of renew our teaching license in a way. Uh, so we need to be uh, always equipped with a with the knowledge of the most contemporary learning theories and, and, and research evidence. I mean, we know that uh, what we knew about how people learned 10 years ago is very different from what we know right now on how people learn. Uh, so this is the knowledge that we try to utilize um, in the center and through the workshops and professional development we design for, for lecturers. Um, you mentioned that the center's newly opened since January. Um, have you have you been able to have some feedback already and kind of assess the progress? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, so what we did, uh, we had an open day, a launch day, which was kind of both symbolical, uh, but also more uh, kind of a tangible. Um, goal for us. So during this open day, uh, it was back in March. Uh, it was open to everybody, to all the lecturers and students joined as well. And we had uh, about 100 people throughout the day, which is a very, it's a record number <laughs> for an event that focuses on education. Uh, so we, what we did as part of this open day was to um, showcase what the center can do for, uh, for this faculty, especially. Uh, and the first goal is to, to influence how education is done, to kind of offer directions on how the future of education would look, look like. 
so the first part of the day involved a panel, and we invited five panelists, professors from different faculties, um, to, and again, that, that's symbolical, uh, symbolic because uh, we want to showcase that we need to work more closely with other faculties if we want to, uh, to bring change, especially in education. Um, and these professors were very carefully selected to represent very different ideas and concepts about uh, contemporary issues in, in, in education. Uh, climate change is one of them, internationalization, it's another one, uh, the use of artificial intelligence, open, open eye. Um, what else did we have? And another issue that was discussed is the issue of standardization um, ex exams, for example. So collectively, the, what these panelists did essentially was to kind of offer us um, um, some tools to imagine how education might look like uh, in the future or how can uh, education be redesigned to address current socio-scientific uh, challenges. So that was part of the day and it created a wonderful conversations or if nothing else it kind of offered inspiration uh, or open up the possibility of dialogue across uh, faculties. And the next part of the of the day uh, we had a session where uh, mostly my PhD students and postdocs presented their work so it was more research. That again, it's interdisciplinary, and that uh, again will serve more of a, as an not only a way for us to showcase our work, but to also as an invitation for uh, researchers at the faculty to to more thoroughly engage with educational research, that research that examines the quality of education. Um, we also had representation from our uh, from the honors college, and where the. Uh, the team had an opportunity to share more about the, um, the opportunities that are offered through the honors program and then the other two teams, uh, PI team and day diversity, equity and inclusion. They also kind of showcases the, um, the services that they can offer to, to, our, to our faculty, our lecturers, both in terms of developing skills and knowledge related to internationalization and inclusivity, um, but also more generally like uh, how to innovate your, change your core syllabus uh, to meet, you know, current scientific um, challenges or to redesign your assessment to make your life easier or to not bore students mm -hmm. to death, uh, th these kind of issues. And it was really, it was really a beautiful uh, day. I mean, for us, it kind of showcased, the feedback we received was wonderful um, and showcased the need for this, uh, for this center. Uh, so we received a lot of positive feedback through that. Um, so yeah, that's one kind of evidence that we have that we are doing something right at the, and this is the right time to, to be doing this. And at the moment we're working on, we establish collaborations with all the schools across uh, the university uh, and with other units, uh, Teaching Academy Groningen, for example, other faculties, the teacher education program um, as well. 
Um, and what we're currently working on uh, is to kind of set more concrete goals for the um, for the future. So we are redesigning a set of workshops for all the lecturers in uh, in our faculty. We're designing uh, information days on research on uh, on education, and we'll also have uh, days for students. We're targeting honor students, but of course. Uh, these events will be open for all students to to engage with uh, with research on education. Well, I think uh, we we need to wrap up. But uh, is there any final thoughts you would like to leave us in, in in with? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess um, the thought that comes to to head. Through this, uh, the, through this conversation, I guess it's kind of uh, yeah. Every time I, I reflect on the work that I do, I feel uh, very privileged that I'm uh, that I'm provided to with this uh, with this opportunity, and it's a solid reminder of uh, the power that education has in kind of reimagining uh, the future or equipping everyone with the with the knowledge or the tools and skills needed to to reimagine uh, more um, sustainable societies or more socially just uh, societies thank you yeah thank you thank for you. doing your work and thank you for joining us it mm-hmm. was lovely to hearing about to hear about your work and i hope people uh not only see this as representation representation for scientists but also maybe educators yep absolutely thanks a lot i really enjoyed this okay thanks for tuning in to another episode of the fsc radio we'll see you in two weeks time with the new one Bye. bye